Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Julie Cook. Hey, I'm Matt Downing. Hi there, I'm Janine Dunn. And thanks for joining us for Rethinking EDU. So we're sitting here recording this episode on Sunday, August 9th, 2020. And we're going to talk for the next little while a bit about the reopening school conundrum that we're in. And you may have heard a few episodes back where we talked more about reopening schools, but it was a little bit further away from the actual opening date, and we still had some time to plan. But now here we are, what would you say, co-hosts, like three, three weeks, weeks away from the beginning yeah. of school? Yep. Yeah, three weeks. And there are lots of feelings that are existing in the world right now about reopening school. And we're going to talk more about those feelings, more about some of the things that are really confounding in this process about trying to figure out how to go about reopening schools effectively. And we're going to hopefully break it down for you all and share some of our reflections after the conversation. So let's start co-hosts first with our feelings. And again, this is, you know, three weeks out. Our feelings now are probably a little bit different than what they were before. Julie, what are your feelings right now as of today, three weeks out? Uh, I guess I'm feeling a little uncertain. Um, we want that 2020 vision, but... You know, we can only go with what we can see from here three weeks out. Um, I don't feel confident that even at this late date that school will look like we've planned it at this moment. Um, I think we've had something like four different versions of what school will look like this fall, and I think all schools are in that same boat. But I am confident that we have considered as a team um, just about every angle, and we've tried our best um, to listen to the community, um, our families, our teachers, our students, and we put together a plan that I can see working from here, provided nothing else changes, which I don't think is possible. Um, so the numbers in our county, if they remain the same or better, um, I can see this plan working. So I, I guess I'm feeling uncertain. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Matt, what about you? Yeah, I think uncertain is a, is a good word. I was also thinking like ungrounded um because everything is changing right and and it's also very difficult that you know different schools even within the same region are doing things differently you know from public schools even different public schools doing something differently then you have private schools doing something differently and a lot of people aren't talking about preschools and and sort of what they're doing which is a, a totally different um aspect and and part of it um, makes me a bit sad because you see different groups um, sort of like pinning things against each other. Um, and that's not helpful. I don't feel like we're walking in unison. Um, there's a lot of division amongst uh, amongst schools and then schools against schools um, because they may not agree or they may not feel like they're doing something that might help the other person's cause. And, and I think that makes things a bit ungrounded. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Janine, what about you? Yeah, I would I would agree with those. I would also throw in there that at this particular moment, I'm probably feeling feeling a little overwhelmed, um, <laughs> to be honest. You know, I think when I think of my roles that I'm playing right now, where I am a lead teacher um, at within our K to eight school, and you know, we're having to rethink our entire curriculum and plan, and then I'm also um, an adjunct at a local university and having to again, rethink and plan for that too. Um, 
you know, I've had to change my, all, our syllabus is, had to be all redone. And then I'm also, as a parent, you know, with three kids trying to figure out what are we, you know, what are they going to be doing? What am I doing? How are we going to make this all work? It's just so much, a lot to think about. And I, I'm feeling, I'm feeling slightly overwhelmed, but I'm, I agree with Julie though, that I think right now we're putting in the time to really think through all these different little details and the what ifs and, you know, when it comes to go time, we will, we will be ready and we will be fine. And, and it, it will, it'll be the best that it could possibly be. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. You guys sound a little bit more optimistic than I am. <laughs> Not gonna uh, lie. Yeah, Mike, how, how are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling pretty anxious about the opening of school. And I was just talking with my mother yeah. the other day and she's very concerned for my health and well-being. And, um, you know, our school's going to go back face to face for five days a week. And, it just is anxiety inducing, mostly because we don't have enough information about who actually has COVID and who doesn't. And that's the, that's the really the hard part for me is because I think that we could as a community do a really good job of kind of coming together and constructing our own safe bubble to where we can say, you know, these certain people have been here, these certain people have not been here. If you have COVID and you need to stay home, that's fine. We can meet your needs while you're at home as much as possible in that scenario. If you're a teacher and you have COVID, we can allow you to be home and but still uh, do your, you know, professional duties. But at as of right now, we don't really know. And that anxiety-inducing fact sort of permeates all of the decisions that we have within our region and in the country. And the infection rate, you know, as of last week was like 3.2% or something like that in, in the county in which my school is located in. And so we could potentially be, you know, um, starting school with X amount of students and or adults that are COVID positive and may not even know about it and bring them into our community. And then we're facing all sorts of problems just right from the get-go. So that's sort of where my feelings are. I know that we'll do a good job with instruction once we, you know, really get into it and figure out how to do it in a way that's going to meet the needs of all of our students. And I'm pretty confident in that all schools in the country are going to be able to meet the needs of all their students much better than they were when they had to go through emergency shutdown in March. But it's it's a hard place to be. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's a hard place to be. Yeah, so I, I think that we are in agreement, and you know, correct me if if I'm wrong. Going back to school for face to face instruction is the best thing for kids. Would co-host, would you agree with that? If there was no COVID, <laughs> yeah. If 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 the situation were right, right. We know that kids learn best in person. We know that they need that peer interaction. We know that it's an equity issue. That if you know, if they have to end up being at home, there's things that are out of our control as, as teachers, as educators, schools, um, if they're not in the, in the school building. Sure. Sure. What are the other things that we know that schools provide? And we might be preaching to the choir of our audience here, but what are those, those core things that schools provide that are really challenging for parents to get at home without school? Well, I think, um, kids learn better when, teachers and peers that you build a community and that's just everything is harder when you're doing that in a virtual environment it's not impossible um for me it's just it's different 
and it's it's harder. Uh, certainly not some place that I've been before as a teacher. So this is all new territory for us. That's all. Um, I know there's a lot of maybe cyber school teachers who are are thinking, well, hold on a minute. Um, but again, this is this is new for us. Uh, so how I um, have developed relationships uh, with students over the past, you know, all of that, you know, has to shift in my thinking. Um, just you know, we're looking for workarounds. We're looking for how do we do it definitely better than the spring. I know we can do better than the spring. Um, but I think that's where we need to be um, starting with is how do we build relationships because nothing else is going to fall into place if we don't have that. So, and I feel that if kids are set adrift um, and they're not grounded in community, um, then nothing else is going to work. I'm not so sure that in-persons, I'm not saying it's not, but I'm not so sold that in-person school is necessarily better than a virtual component. Um, like when I think about virtual component, I'm not thinking about the student in front of the computer, right? Like imagine a, a high school student or even a middle school student that's really interested in the medical profession and they're not in the, the building, but they're in the hospital with the doctor, with the nurse, and then they're checking in with their advisor via Zoom throughout the day. And that student is able to learn in a new way. So do I think sitting in front of a computer, uh, like Zoom all day, do I think that's better than in-person school? No. Um, but do I think other alternatives that can really tap into student agency um, and build engagement are better? My answer is yes. Um, and, and that's what I think. And we've talked about this before on, on the podcast when we were thinking about the closing, like, what's this going to do, you know, for the education system? How's this going to change things? And if this just changes things to we're on Zoom from eight to, to like noon, then that's terrible, you know, and, and this and this did the exact opposite of of what we like when we were trying to be positive, we had these visions and like what things are becoming for virtual isn't like an exciting vision of like student engagement. Another piece of this that parents are missing are all of the extras that schools are designed to be which are like community center hubs for mental health for students, locations where professionals who know how to coach and teach students with a variety of different um, learning differences, you know, sort of come together and figure out how to really help students. Not to mention, how what's our school lunch program like in the United States? You know, you're talking about billions of dollars of school lunch and breakfast and those are two meals out of the day that parents and families are all of a sudden missing without schools being um, being in person. And a lot of schools have taken taken specific steps to kind of re-engage their lunch and breakfast programs and deliver those meals to families, but not all schools have. And those students have really lost out for, for those reasons. Let's just be honest. I mean, Mike asking, you know, what are what do the parents get out of sending their kids to school it, at some point we will have to talk about it being a child care issue as a parent myself it's a concern you know if i have to be in a building teaching in person but my kids don't where do my kids go what do i do now <laughs> you know? so our our country has constructed the workforce 
and the school experience to kind of go hand in hand. Wouldn't you agree? I would. <laughs> Matt, you've, <laughs> you've got young kids too. Wouldn't you agree with that statement? Yeah. Yeah. They, they definitely, um, coincide. Think, things seem to be structured and sadly, um, it, it seems like sometimes schools are, are just a place it's like, uh, you know, pre-K for like uh, a 13 year old. Um, and, and that's <laughs> right, not right, a positive right. experience. If school doesn't go back in person from a parent perspective, how does that impact your families? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be very, uh, difficult. Um, my my wife just got offered a job in a different district, and so she's going to be on a different schedule than me. And my kids are in a different district than than us. So we have three different districts, uh, three different plans um, right now. And and if one of us, well, if both of us go back and the, and the kids don't, we have three kids, one kindergarten, and then the other two are twins in fourth grade. And um, yeah, I don't I don't know what we're gonna do. I guess we're gonna hire a nanny, but they're gonna be in high demand and. Um, uh, you know, we're sort of uh, getting at it a little bit late in the game. Um, and and I don't know. Um, Rachel's mom isn't available. My my parents, I don't think, are available. Um, there's a lot of emails going around about nanny shares and, like, all of this, and that gets a little crazy. Um, I, so the answer is I don't know. And, and, it's, and when you're talking about anxiety, um, that's, that's something that, that sort of starts that to to bubble up um, thinking about that and, and what that might look like. Yeah. And I guess I'm in a little bit of a dis- different situation where my kids go to the school that I teach at. Um, so I guess there's two things to consider. If I, if, if I have to be in person and they're in person, great, you know, fine. They're, they're, they're coming along or we're all being exposed to the same germs, I guess. But if we all end up having to go virtual, that kind of ends up being a problem for me because if I have to, I'm teaching from home, you know, I'm on the computer with my students, but then my own kids have to be on the computers too. Um, you know, and the, my, the other adults in our house are also working. It's like, who's overseeing my kids while they're on their computers. You know, I have a first grader, you know, like who's, who's going to help them. I can't help them <laughs> if I, if I'm teaching. So, um, That'll be a problem. And I mean, I have, I have other teacher friends who it's same situation as Matt, where they've were told um, that their kid's school is going all virtual. The school that they teach at is going hybrid, but teachers are expected to, even if they're teaching virtually, they have to go into the school building to teach virtually. So now they have to figure out what they're going to do with their, their own kids. It's like a mishmash. Um, yeah. And it, it is, it is a childcare issue for sure. It seems pretty like straightforward to me, this situation, which is prioritize getting kids back in school, which then allows us to prioritize the getting of childcare back, which then allows us to prioritize economic gain. But it doesn't seem to have gone like that. <laughs> you know, I and I and I don't I, I don't quite know why. But like, where does this political rub kind? Of, where does it? Where is it coming from? You know, what? Are, what are your thoughts about that? This is not an easy question, by the way. <laughs> no, I no, it's not. I, I, I feel like there's so many, there's so much conflicting information out there, and so much, even like conflicting logic, really. You know, 
if we're if we're telling if we're telling students that we're sorry we're, we're, you can't play false sports but you have to come mm-hmm. to school in person like right i don't see the logic in that if we're if we're releasing criminals from prison because we're worried about them contracting covid the but we're going to send kids into crowded school buildings i don't see the logic in that <laughs> like i'm not arguing mm-hmm. for or against any of those things i'm just saying that the logic there is there's conflicting across the board well i i think there's so much to weigh um that that's why people and there's so much energy and when you have people's children there's emotion involved right and people's health these are life and death decisions so i think people are trying to weigh everything you think about it they have let's weigh the mental health of students which is something to consider right um and we know that firsthand weigh the stress of teachers, as we've all shared this evening. Um, we're responding to mandates from the county and the state and developing protocols to try to comply. Um, we're talking about parents who just simply must go back to work without childcare options. Um, we're reworking our approach, as we've also mentioned, to accommodate you know, at-home learners, uh, planning for academic learning, social-emotional growth, Um, Not to mention the enormous responsibility of keeping everyone safe, which is the number one priority. So this is unprecedented. So it's not a surprise to me that people are on two very different polarized, that people are stressed out, right? There's no good option. And that's the answer. Everything we do, no matter what we do, is half the people are going to think this is the absolute wrong call. And the other half will think, you know, it's the wrong call because it's all going to be hard and it's all going to be, you know, two bad choices, 10 bad choices, all these different models. Um, it's just a hard time. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I, and I think that, <laughs> right, all. right. You know, no big deal. <laughs> so part of me also really feels like this points out another inequity that has existed in our school system that maybe we haven't grappled with in a, in a while. And that's this idea that school has become a, a, like, as Matt said earlier, sort of babysitting center, that the view of school for right or for wrong is that kids are able to go to school to be cared for while parents are having to prioritize something like work. Um, or or something else. And like I said, it, it, I don't know that there's right or wrong about that, but there is a nuance in the difference between childcare and teaching and teaching and childcare. And I don't know exactly what that is or like how to tease that out or fundamentally re-understand or rethink that point of view, but schools are doing a lot more than just babysitting. And I think that point of view has become crystal clear as teachers who are seasoned professionals with multiple degrees and have practiced the art of teaching in many cases for many years have kind of come to the fore and said, hey, listen, we're doing more than just like watching kids be in a classroom. You know, these are all the other things that go into teaching. And parents have really discovered that too, maybe more than ever, um, as their kids have been home more and more. And it just makes things even more challenging as we try to like reshape what school actually means. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I read, a, there was a great article or posting I saw the other day that really 
was talking to speaking to what you were just talking about um where you know you go to school to be a teacher it's like oh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna teach math but you don't really act i mean yeah you teach math but you there's so much more to it we have to do character education we have to do you know no bully programs we have to be aware of the kids social emotional health you know we have to be um great communicators and you know all these other skill sets that come in play and that other things that we have to either keep an eye on or teach the kids outside of our content area um yeah it's just it's just so much more than it's become i'm not complaining i'm just saying <laughs> yeah 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 no it's it's true and i think that the pandemic has just pointed to those things i'm not saying that people didn't know those things before and i think parents have known those things for a long time but now here we are and it's just pointing directly at them um and it it makes things it makes things harder it makes decisions harder let's talk about science for a minute uh so a lot of people have been talking about the like existing information that that is kind of pooling in the world that are helping schools make decisions better as being incomplete. Uh, and there's lots of conflicting points of view from like the CDC even uh, as guidelines have come out, you know, for schools to kind of go by. So what's the problem there? Who wants to tease this out with me? <laughs> well, I think we don't know yet. And that's the the frustration of making decisions here on August 9th about what the world's going to look like on September 9th um, or earlier for some schools who are actually already um, back in the swing of things, but we don't know. So I've read so many different articles with within the same article, even with conflicting views that, you know, children are less likely to um, transmit this disease. Um, but do we really have data on that? Because the moment it really started to ramp up in the country in March, schools were shut down. So we don't have good data here. Uh, there's some other world models out there that we can look to, um, but those seem to be conflicting as well. Uh, so I think there's not been a consistent message from the CDC um, and the state and our county guidelines don't quite match our state guidelines. Um, so it's been a it's been really hard to have a consistent message as as Matt had pointed to in the beginning um, here. If, if we don't have a consistent message, school to school to school, everybody's doing something different. It's like pick a menu option that works for your school. Um, but we're all trying to find out and even agree on what the data is. So that's what's really frightening. <laughs> right. And as because this is new, we have to, t the data that is here today, the way that we interpret the data that we have today is going to be different than, you know, three months from now. If you look back to March, when it, like Julie just said, when it all started happening and the data showed that we were having this, you know, off the charts sort of thing happening. Oh, well, who knew that it could get like that much worse? You know, it, like, I just think there's some, there's some context that has to come especially in a new situation with data, like data, data can tell a story, but it's only a moment in time. And it's not the data that we're looking at right now is only a small little piece of the picture. Like, so I, to Julie's point, it, it, it's, we don't know, we can't, we just, we don't know, even if we're, we're trying to focus in on numbers and data or whatever, but it's just, we can't see the whole picture. We don't know what the whole story is. Yeah. One, one thing that's hard for me is, okay, we go back to March, right? 
one of the the things that we were told and that was told really uh, across the country was we need um, to set up these protocols so that we don't overwhelm the health system. We don't overwhelm the hospitals, right? We don't want them uh, to not be able to care for the sick. So that to me was the impetus for shutting down schools and all of this. It's very difficult for me because I go down to, I'm in Philadelphia and I go down to HUP, Hospital University of Pennsylvania, one of the biggest hospitals in, in Philadelphia. Um, and they have three cases right now of, um, of COVID. So it's hard for me, like, okay, so how do I now put that in the narrative when I'm trying to understand the decisions and the data when the story and the script and the narrative, in my opinion, um, continues to change. And that's why one of the reasons I think makes it so uneasy to try to figure this thing out. And just to add to that, Matt, that a second wave of COVID could easily turn those three cases into 300 cases in a very short amount of time. And that's the sort of uber scary part about this um, is that to Janine and Julie's point is that there's not enough data around to figure out how quickly uh, the disease can communicate between individuals and how quickly that could turn into an overwhelm in the healthcare system. Because the truth is, is that the healthcare system in the United States is just not necessarily built for pandemics. I mean, I don't know of anybody who builds a healthcare system for pandemics, but in particular, our healthcare system is, is not. And to add to your point, Matt, I think the other thing that is emerged out of this for me is that we're sort of watching the collection of data, the interpretation of, of data, and the unfolding of the scientific process before our very eyes. And I think that as people in the United States, we tend to kind of understand science as being something that is like largely taken on behind the scenes and that isn't always having to be communicated to the public in a like super timely and very clear manner because you know we can kind of take it take its course over time and kind of collect more information and then share that as we go but we're watching this data collecting collection process happen right now and we're just watching how inaccurate it is and that's not negative or positive it just happens in science right that like you're going to put together a study that may not be entirely foolproof and as a result of that we're kind of learning how to understand science as it's unfolding in front of our very eyes which is really different uh experience for many people i know something we talked about just before we were recording this podcast is about cdc guidelines and what those mean for schools uh, Julie, you want to talk more about CDC things? Well, so there's these guidelines, as we all know, um, and schools are working, <laughs> right, working right. like um, crazy people. We're just trying to figure out how to, you know, comply with these these guidelines. Um, and some p schools have read either the county guidelines or they're following the state guidelines or the CDC guidelines or a conglomeration of all of those things. But um, not everyone agrees if all kids should be wearing masks or if all teachers should be wearing masks and in what situation should we be wearing masks um and what's a mask is it a face covering 
is it a shield? Is it a mask? Oh right. Um, yeah. Also, yeah, right, yeah, right. not everyone <laughs> agrees if it should be three feet um, or four feet or six feet. Um, and, you know, where should the kids eat lunch? If they're six feet apart um, and they're eating lunch, can their masks be off? And what does that look like? So I think once that six foot guideline came down, that's really what changed everything. Because I think most schools can figure out three feet, but six feet and eating uh, with a mask off or on, or what does that mean? Um, definitely. And of course, all of this costs money. So that's, that's the other thing we, we, you know, trying to find the, the wash your hands and COVID posters and directing students into different um, entrances and exits and all that and the buses and transportation and staggered times and hybrid models. All of this is trying to comply and all of this costs more money, more um, staffing. Um, and it's really just a logistics puzzle um, that each school has to really try to work out. Yeah. Well, and then you start talking about the, how do you implement these guidelines in, in schools, especially in schools that lack funding? You know, I know they've been, there's grants, the CARES Act came out, you know, there's, there's, there's money to be tapped into, but I just, I just can't imagine it being enough. You can't make a building any bigger than what it is, you know? Um, so there's, there's, there's funding issues. It brings us back to the discussion on equity, you know, that there are private schools, there are, and there's larger, there, there's public schools in the, in the nice suburbs that are able to totally meet those guidelines. They can, they can spread, you know, the kids out. They have the space to do it. But that who's who's getting hurt the most by by it? It's you know the schools that have already been suffering, the schools that already don't have enough money to to be able to meet the needs of all their kids and to be able to yeah meet the needs of their kids. <laughs> the funding issue is so front and center because I've I've looked at all the CDC guidelines. I see them and I see how many times I'm supposed to sanitize things and how often I need to do things to make sure that students aren't getting COVID in my classroom, the supplies that I that I would need to have students have. And it just is so front and center. It's it's really pretty crazy. You know, the there are schools that, in fact, there are a lot of schools that ask their students to bring in supplies at the beginning of the school year because they're not able to afford them. And teachers that are asking parents to help fund their classrooms for certain things. And here we are now saying, sorry, kids, like if you want to go to art class, you have to have your own set of colored pencils. And that's a huge expense for some parents. And that is just so, um, so inequitable and so wild that we're now having to ask schools to do all of those things for their kids. And then also we're, we're going to see um, funding cut short because people just haven't collected taxes in so long because there's been so much unemployment. Yeah. Right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> just going to also mention it's kind of tied into funding too, but transportation, right. That it's been interesting to look how different districts are approaching the transportation issues. 
some districts have decided to bring on more buses so that they can have more buses running so that they can, you know, spread kids out on the bus. Other districts have just said, we can't do it. Kids are going to have to sit like they normally would on the bus and just wear a mask. And it is what it is. And then you have parents who are saying, well, I'm just going to drive my kids to school. Well, that's so that's nice if you have that option. But then again, it, it goes back to the, the equity issue. Who's who's getting the short end of the stick here? It's always the same people. Yeah, that's right. And some schools have even gone so far as to say to parents in at least a couple of reopening plans that I've seen, you should plan on driving your kid to school. And that's so wild. <laughs> like, I don't, it, yeah. Well, for the parents, though, it's just not possible for them to make that happen. Um, and so I don't know how, I don't know how that's going to work for some of those schools. So what I want to ask you all in the next couple minutes here is pick the number one most hot button issue that you think um, has come about as we've like sort of ramped up the controversy around reopening schools in the last few weeks. What do you think that hot button issue is and elaborate a little bit more why? Well, I can start. If I think too much, um, it'll, it'll just get, it'll just get worse. Um, uh, face masks, maybe. Um, so, you know, it's a big issue, right? Uh, K through 12, how's a kindergartner going to keep on a face mask all day? But if they don't, then, um, you know, it's potential to pass on the disease easier, easier to the other classmates and the teacher. And I, it's just hard for me, like the consistency. So if a 12th grader is supposed to have a face mask on, why isn't a, a kindergartner? I'm not even saying I, I'm not even sure I, you know, I know exactly how I feel about the face mask in general, but I'm having in, in school, but I'm having an issue with the consistency. Okay. And then you leave the school building and you go into Lowe's and you have to have on a face mask. You have to be six feet there's plexiglass between you and the employee for safety. And when you go into school and I don't know how this is going to look right, but is there consistency? Is there, are there safety protocols to protect the students and the staff and all of the staff members? And, um, and I, I think that's a hot button issue and a lot of people talking about that. And I, and I think um, a lot of people are confused about the different, you know, the different protocols, you know, from stores to restaurants to schools. Why is it different? Why has it changed? We can't meet in a big group uh, to go watch a basketball game, but we can have 2000 people in, in a school building. Um, like, what's that about? So, yeah, I, I 100% agree with you, Matt. I do think that that is the number one issue is the inconsistencies. Like I said, like the, the, the logic <laughs> here being so inconsistent that um, it applies to one situation, but not another. Like, I, I think that's, that makes me upset, I guess. Um, and I think that's making other people upset that, you know, restaurants in our area have to function at 25% capacity, but schools don't, I don't know. Like, like who makes up, the, it just seems like we're just making up rules as we go and just, you have to follow this one, you have to follow that one. And yeah, whatever. <laughs> Um, you know what, to be honest, like all the hot button issues have sort of faded in my mind because we've got three weeks to go. So I'm in that mode where I'm just putting all of that to the side and I'm just planning. I'm, 
I am planning for, you know, hours and hours a week of trying to figure out like the, the logic puzzle of how to have, you know, live streaming kids at, at home and um, really trying to, you know, get to everybody um, and, and launch the school year in a positive manner for the kids, no matter what it looks like. And I still, like I said, I still don't know that we know what it's going to look like even on August 9th here. Um, but I, I'm not thinking about the hot button issues. I've sort of had to, as a teacher, like move to shelve it so that I can just focus on the launch of this and what I'm going to have to pull off here, which is sizable. So you're saying <laughs> your hot button issue is how do I teach in this situation? <laughs> Which I think is like really legitimate, right? You, you want to talk about a hot button issue. It's like, how can I be a teacher right now? That's the question. That's the question we're all asking. How can I be a teacher right now? Hey, Mike, what's your hot button issue? So I would, I would say my hot button issue here is that at some point, the way that the infection rate for COVID is working right now and is happening right now, that we, it is very likely that either a teacher or a student within a school will end up COVID positive before the first, at the end of the first quarter of the school year. And because we know that to be true, our response mechanism has got to be super strong in order to, to protect every individual within a community. And I think that rightfully parents are arguing that schools should be back in session face to face. I think that makes total sense to me. And I think that students want to be back in school for all the reasons why students could want to be back in school and should want to be back in school. But I think that the adults, the teachers in the building are at the highest risk for contracting coronavirus and experiencing symptoms that are potentially deadly. And, and that really is the big hot button issue for me is schools are not equipped to be frontline institutions. We're not hospitals. We're not equipped to handle mass infection and mass, um, and mass grieving potentially when someone is infected or someone dies within a community. And, and so we're left right now to kind of be struggling with this idea that students go back to school. Also, we should be struggling with the idea that teachers are going to have to go back to school and have to deal with the potential life-altering consequences of dealing with COVID. And that's, I think, super hot button and something that everybody should be thinking about no matter what kind of school you teach or work So let's enter into the reflection part of this podcast. What is this conversation kind of making you rethink? Who wants to go first? I think my takeaway um, from reopening schools and all of the conversations that we've had over the summer uh, together and all of the conversations I've had with uh, people in my community um, is, you know, I'm trying to have some grace and some patience uh, with other people. And I'm trying to, you know, assume good intentions. Like, Families are making difficult decisions um, as our teachers, as our school leaders. And that is my takeaway, that this is not easy. Um, it does feel like no matter if you step to the left, you step to the right, it's the wrong decision. Um, so we just have to go with what 
um, what we believe to be best and, and go with it. Um, so I'm hoping for myself to add a level of calm and just be as ready as I can to, to give it a go. Yeah. For, for me, um, I think this has really started to highlight again, the need for school choice. Um, you know, really with all these different options being presented from in-person, hybrid, virtual, and parents being able to choose what's best for their kid and their situation. I think that we've seen, we saw in the spring, you know, for some kids, virtual didn't work, right? Um, but for others, it really did work. Um, you know, so you can't say that one really is better than another for, for any particular kid. Kind of, Matt had brought that up earlier. Um, and I agree that I think here we have a chance to, to show that school choice is a viable option for, for parents. Um, not only that, you're seeing, you know, backyard schools, <clears throat> these micro schools, neighborhood cohorts starting to pop up. Parents are looking for other options for schooling. Um, and it, it's kind of an interesting thing to, to think about right now. But yeah, I, I think I think this is just brought to light again, the argument for school choice. Yeah, there's a lot of takeaways. There's a lot of stuff um that I'm thinking about, but, but one of the points that's really resonating me, uh, with me from our conversation is, um, is what Julie was talking about. Um, you know, for our listeners, think about what she was saying, all of the work that she's putting into planning for the school year. And, and the summer is, is a time where, where teachers plan, but it's not a time where teachers get paid for their planning. So, so all of that is coming out of a passion um, to figure this out, to do what's best, um, and to and to try to figure it out. Um, but then to also hear her other side and to and to sort of understand that that this isn't easy for parents either, you know. Um, and and I think a lot of teachers are are in a similar spot. I know Julie's, uh, you know, maybe one of the best teachers, but uh, but a lot of teachers similar in that sentiment of of their working you know they're they're trying to figure this out and and they also aren't pointing any fingers because because they understand that that it's difficult for families as well and and uh, um and that's a hard balance right because as we're trying to figure this out and we're working and and it's unsettling and it's it, it produces anxiety um it's easy to point the finger um, and, and try to find out who's responsible. And, and a lot of times, um, you know, that balance gets out of whack, um, because there's so many different factors and we're still in the midst of this pandemic. Um, so I just commend, uh, you know, teachers like Julie and, um, and yeah, I just wanted to highlight that, that that's, that that's going on. And, um, and I think it's really remarkable. I, I would say that this is making me remember and reflect on the harder than life decision that a parent has to make right now about what happens with their kid. And in some cases, you know, whether you agree with the sentiment that kids are likely to get COVID if they go back or you don't, you know, is sort of uh, beside the point. Parents are left to kind of grapple with this, these data points that we talked about earlier that are incomplete and that are still evolving. And 
are putting their kids in a position where for some parents, they just, they don't know whether their kid is going to get COVID or not. And that could be a really, really big deal or not as much of a big deal, but it's a really, really challenging place to put a parent for so long in the United States. School has been such a trusted institution for childcare and teaching and learning across the country that now all of a sudden we're in, in a moment in time where parents are having to question the care part of that. Not maybe necessarily questioning the instructional quality, because I think that a lot of schools are going to do much better than we did in the spring of last year, last school year. But parents are having to question the care of students from a uh, like well-being standpoint because the virus is floating around out there and it doesn't care whether kids are in school or outside or whatever you know the virus is there it doesn't care whether we think we should be going back to school or not it really has only one agenda and that's that is putting parents in a really challenging place so for if you're a parent listening to this i don't envy the position you're in it's super challenging and you know you could always email us ask us some questions we would appreciate that so yeah that's my that's my thought about all of this all right co-hosts let's get into the last segment what do you want to plug so I'm going to, I'm going to do a book series here. I've been reading with, with my boys and there is a series called great battles for boys. Although I don't know why they said great battles for boys. It really should just be like great battles for anyone that likes battles, but, <laughs> um, but it's great. They do, they have little, like little mini short stories of like all, all sorts of different battles throughout different wars. We're reading the ones right now that go from bunker hill, bunker hill to, to world war one. Um, and, and and they're good little clips, good little stories. So if you have a, a young historian or anybody that likes little stories about battles, um, yeah, it's called Great Great Battles for Boys, and it's by um, Joe Giarelio. I'll plug um, in my continual quest to um, help make uh, virtual connections to real world learning. Um, Nepris. Um, so if you just do www.nepris.com, um, you'll see that it's a network um, that you can schedule virtual chats with industry professionals um, and request guest speakers for your classroom. Um, and there's all kinds of um, pre-made industry videos to kind of connect what you're learning in class to careers and um, also help with some student research as well. So um, I'm pretty excited to, um, I just have a new dashboard and I'm just exploring that um, that resource. Oh, I'm a. I'm gonna plug the full focus planner. Um, are you gonna feel? Have you been feeling a little overwhelmed and lost trying to plan your events with all of this virtual learning? Uh, this planner will help. Yes. Then uh, you can uh, sign up and um, and and get one. And this is gonna help you. It's a. Anyway, it's a planner from Michael. Uh, planner from Michael Hyatt, and it, it really helps get focused, deep work, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm gonna plug a podcast uh, collective called Multitude. They're located uh, in Brooklyn, 
and it is a collection of, I would call them independent podcasts that have sort of come together as uh, members and kind of produce really interesting material. Um, one of my favorite shows, of course, is a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Join the Party. But one of the other really fun shows that they have is called Potterless. And it is a narrated story of a person who is reading Harry Potter for the first time, sort of in real time. Super fun, super interesting. Um, and I'll, I'll snag a link um, or I'll drop a link to that in our podcast description. Well, listeners, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Rethinking EDU. We tried to, uh, you know, discuss this really interesting and provocative topic, and we hope that you took a few things away from this discussion. As always, we appreciate you being here with us. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Pandora. Head on over to our website, rethinkingedu.co. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>